Hello, my name's Chris Galvin with the International Code of Conduct Association, otherwise known as ICOCA. I'm pleased to introduce the fourth episode in our podcast series, Future Security Trends, Implications for Human Rights. Today's episode is Human Rights and Private Security, Adapting to the Future. I'm pleased to be joined today by Dr. Sorka McLeod, Marie Curie Fellow and Associate Professor on the Faculty of Law at the University of Copenhagen Center for Private Governance and a member of the UN Working Group on the Use of Mercenaries. Sorka, could you tell us about your research interests and what it was that drew you to the field of security and human rights? Thanks, Chris, and thanks for inviting me to, to talk about this today. Um, well, uh, as, an, uh, as you already mentioned, I'm an academic and um, the focus of my research is uh, private military and security companies and human rights in a, in a general sense. But um, as a Marie Curie Fellow, um, I have a project which is looking uh, specifically at how uh, we can ensure that uh, private security providers comply with human rights standards and are held accountable for human rights violations if and when they occur. And I'm specifically interested on the impacts on marginalised groups and marginalised groups could include women, children, the LGBT community, disabled people, or even civilians in armed, armed conflicts. Um, in terms of what drew me to the field of, of security and human rights, um, I think I, I ended up working in the field uh, as a result of serendipity more than, more than anything rather than design. Um, I have always had an interest in human rights and I've always had an interest in the, the, the wider field of business and, and human rights. Um, and I did an LLM at the University of Dundee many years ago on um, international natural resources law, and I was very interested in the um, the sort of interaction between uh, natural resource companies, mining companies, oil companies, and, and human rights. And then when I did my my PhD at the University of Glasgow, I decided to focus on business and human rights more generally. I then came to the security sector uh, via the Privor project, which was an EU-funded uh, FP7 project um, back in, I think it was 2008 that it, it started. And they wanted somebody uh, who knew about private military, uh, who knew about business and human rights, sorry, um, to come on board with the, this project that was looking at um, private military security companies uh, from an international law perspective and because I was involved with with the Privor project I then started getting invitations to things like the Wilton Park conference um, and some of the early meetings around the development of the Montreux documents and then subsequently was invited to participate in the, the creation of the International Code of Conduct and I've uh, stayed working in the field of, of security and human rights ever since. So Soki, you've been appointed as a human rights expert on the United Nations Working Group on Mercenaries and the UN Intergovernmental Working Group on Private Military and Security Companies. So could you tell us about the work of these groups? Absolutely. I am uh, an independent human rights expert uh, on the, the UN Working Group on the Use of Mercenaries. And the Working Group is part of what's known as the uh, Special Procedures um, of the Human Rights Council. and I and four colleagues are uh, appointed by the Human Rights Council 
to look at human rights issues around mercenaries, mercenary-related activities, uh, as well as uh, private military and security companies. We are not employed by the UN. Our independence is extremely um, important. We report to both the Human Rights Council and to the, the United Nations General Assembly. Uh, so what do we do on a, on a practical basis? Well, we prepare thematic reports and, and studies. So for example, last year we produced a, a report on the gendered human rights impacts of private military and security companies. We also produced a report on private military and security companies and uh, the natural resource sector. We conduct expert consultations and outreach events. We cooperate with other um, special procedure mandate holders. So for example, the, the Working Group on Business and Human Rights, but also the other uh, mandate holders. We conduct country visits within the context of our mandate. And we can receive allegation uh, letters um, alleging complaints in the, the context of our, of our mandate and we can uh, issue what are known as communications to um, uh, states um, but also to non-state actors so we can, uh, we can issue letters uh, to uh, companies outlining the allegations that have been made and, and asking them to respond to the allegations. We also uh, contribute to uh, different international organizations and initiatives. So we have a, a, a good working relationship with, the, with ICOCA, for example, but we also contribute to things like the open-ended intergovernmental working group on private military and security companies. Which brings me to the, the, second, the second initiative that you, that you mentioned. Um, so while with the, the UN working group on the use of mercenaries, I, I have been appointed for, for a six year period, uh, with the UN Intergovernmental Working Group, it's a, it's a different uh, UN mechanism. It's created by states, uh, for states, and on occasion they invite different experts to talk about different aspects of, uh, the, of private military and security companies in, in this case. There have been two iterations of the uh, Intergovernmental Working Group. Um, the first one was specifically focusing on creating a treaty to govern the activities of private military security companies. But the second iteration of the, the working group is looking at a variety of different regulatory options for, for governing and regulating the, the, the PMSC industry. Now, that in itself has, has been controversial and uh, the working group's position, my working group's position, working group on the use of mercenaries, we take the, the view that um, there should be a treaty uh, in, in this area, but that's not something that has been decided uh, yet. And in, in some respects, the intergovernmental working group feels a little bit like a groundhog day that we are back to talking about some of the basics um, that we were talking about 10, 12 years ago when, when we were creating the Montreux document, when we, when we were creating the International Code of Conduct. Um, and I think we're a very long way away from getting any sort of international regulatory framework in place for PMSCs. Now you've used the term um, PMSCs there. And, uh, you know, private military and security companies are often lumped together 
But in a previous podcast, uh, Richard Wilde talked about the rise of non-state actors and the importance of distinguishing between private security companies on one hand and mercenaries on the other. The use of mercenaries appears to be on the rise in some African states. Um, there was a, a mercenary group involved in a failed coup in Venezuela recently. So should we be concerned about this development? And then what are the implications of this for an organization like ICOCA? The terminology in this area uh, is something that gives rise to a lot of discussion. It's very controversial. I use the term private military and security companies because that is um, a term with my UN hat on. That is a term um, that is explicitly included within uh, my UN mandate. So that's one of the reasons that I use it. I think focusing on the name of actors and non-state actors is not really terribly helpful whether you call them private military companies, private military security companies, private security providers, all it does is create a, a bit of a fog, a bit of a haze um, around, around the, the industry. And what actually matters are the services uh, that, the, that the, these commercial actors are, are providing. Um, they are all commercial actors. And I, and I think it's helpful to to think about them um, as being on a on a spectrum, and I know that the industry is very much um, seeking to distance itself from the the mercenaries, the actors that are providing um, combat services, that are providing uh, frontline services in armed in armed conflicts, and and that's that's definitely understandable. But it doesn't really help us when it comes to trying to regulate uh, the, the industry. Um, there's definitely been a rise um, in the use of, if we can call them the classic mercenary, the mercenaries that are actively providing combat services and actively being involved in the, the front line of, of armed uh, conflicts. Um, to the extent that um, Equatorial Guinea, in its um, temporary pr uh, presidency of the, the UN Security Council in February 2019, brought it to the table, brought it to international attention to say, this is, um, this is a, 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 an ongoing situation. These mercenaries never went away, and actually, they are increasing. And as a working group, we have uh, looked at um, situations in many countries in Africa, Central African Republic, for example, where we definitely see that commercial actors are being involved in combat activities. And so what we call them doesn't, doesn't really matter. You know, if we look at the, the regulatory framework, even the regulatory framework can't, uh, reg regulatory frameworks can't agree on the, the terminology that we should use. So the Montreux document, for example, talks about private military and security companies, but the International Code of Conduct talks about private security providers. And that, uh, that again, doesn't, doesn't help the, the situation and just creates more, uh, more, con uh, more confusion. So I think the focusing on the services, on what the companies are doing, is, is a much more helpful way to look at the the situation rather than tying ourselves in knots trying to define what is or is not a PMSC what is or is not a private security company what is or is not a private security provider let's look at what they're doing 
is what they're doing um, problematic? Is it violating human rights? Is it violating international humanitarian law? That's what we should be what we should be looking at. And the reality is, if you are a commercial security provider and you are not violating human rights and you're not engaging in, in combat services um, in armed conflicts, then it's it shouldn't be a problem for you. Sure. Well, thank you for that. Now, um, pandemics were not mentioned during the November workshop, as I recall. And yet within a few months, the world was in lockdown. Uh, private security companies were deemed an essential service in many countries. And the risk of human rights abuses involving private security was heightened in many settings, whether that's because security guards themselves were being put in harm's way or because of heavy handed implementation of lockdowns in some countries. Now, does this tell us anything about taking too prescriptive an approach to future security trends and the human rights abuses that may result? Yes, I mean, uh, history's made a bit of a, a fool of us, hasn't it? In terms of, yeah, you're absolutely right. Pandemics were not mentioned um, uh, during the, the the workshop. You know, we we looked at. Um, we talked about uh, climate change, uh, we talked about urbanisation of warfare, a lot of, of other very relevant issues, but the, but the COVID-19 caught us on the, the hop. I think there's, there, there are several different concerns with, with COVID-19. Uh, COVID um, I think you've alluded to, to, to one of them already, the, the, the fact that many states have put in place um, emergency laws um, uh, around um, uh, COVID-19 and there are, there's a danger that, um, that the emergency legislation is being abused by, by, by state. Um, so for example, um, tracking and tracing technology that's being, um, being utilised um, and where it's being monitored and operated by the, the private security sector it raises really quite serious concerns about um, uh, the right to privacy and data management. Um, and it raises questions about whether the, the security providers have um, actually uh, been properly vetted and properly trained in, in using that kind of technology and understanding the human rights implications. Um, I think there's another concern um, with the, the emergency laws is that, um, we're seeing some states um, using emergency laws to criminalize marginalized um, groups. And where, where marginalized groups are being uh, criminalized, we are seeing the likelihood of them coming into contact um, with the private security sector. So whether that's in, in private prisons or in, in uh, private, uh, privatized prisoner transport. Um, and so the, the impact of um, of private security will will potentially be more serious uh, for those for those marginalised groups. The code needs to needs to recognise um, that uh, human rights can be impacted and experienced in different ways by 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 different uh, by different groups. I think we're seeing a variety of other impacts of of COVID. Uh, COVID-19. So we're seeing, for example, I mean, we're seeing an, a, a, a huge increase in the demand for, for private security. And that brings with it concerns, again, about um, proper vetting and, and, and training. We've even seen in some countries where, where, where there are licensing systems, we're seeing examples of situations where um, security personnel can get their licenses online. 
and you know, what, what sort of oversight is there? What sort of training are these people getting, particularly when it comes to human rights, human rights training? It raises a lot of issues. In areas where the private security sector has been utilised for many years already, we're, we're seeing um, a variety of different human rights issues arising. So again, in relation to detention centres, for example, now that could be immigration detention centres, but it could also be private prisons. It could also be privatised uh, youth uh, detention centres. These are areas where in recent years we've seen a lot of states outsourcing uh, to the private, private sector. And the reality is that people who are incarcerated are particularly at risk from COVID-19. Um, as are the security personnel who who, who guard them. You've already you've already mentioned that. In, you know, there, there's often little or no possibility of uh, social distancing or or, or self isolation. And in the working group, we've we've actually um, received uh, uh, reports that uh, migrants, for example, are being held in overcrowded and unsanitary conditions, and that they're not being um, given adequate or any access to uh, to healthcare, and so we see some of the most marginalised groups are rendered um, extreme, extremely um, uh, vulnerable. When it comes to border control and management, it's another area where we're seeing an increase of uh, use of, of private security during uh, COVID nineteen. And there's always been concerns about um, the use of force, about other physical integrity rights, but but we're also starting to see with the use of new technologies, um, the gathering of biometric data, as I mentioned earlier. Um, so gathering fingerprints, uh, for example, or using tracking and tracing technology, there are really serious concerns about um, uh, the, right to, the right to privacy. And there's a danger that the security guards working in these kinds of situations are themselves put at risk of contracting COVID, um, but also that they are their um, vectors, potentially vectors for the transmission of the the uh, the disease, um, and of course we've been hearing you know that there have been real issues around um, security personnel having adequate uh, personal protective equipment. I think one of the most interesting things about COVID nineteen is that during the pandemic, this private security sector has been moving into new public spaces, which bring new human rights concerns. So for example, we're seeing uh, private security being utilised um, in hospitals, guarding medical personnel uh, as, as well as the, the, the buildings, but we're also seeing them providing security at COVID-19 testing uh, centres. We're hearing reports that these security guards are uh, reportedly taking medical histories from individuals who are seeking uh, COVID-19 uh, tests. And of course, that again raises really serious concerns about privacy and data management. What training have they? What have they had? There are also reports that suggest that um, they're not being given appropriate PPE, personal protective uh, equipment. And again, given the extensive contracts with the general public, security personnel are vectors to the virus, and both in terms of transmitting it and contracting it and we're already seeing statistics emerging that show that that private security personnel have the highest rate of COVID-19 mortality after medical personnel and, and that's that's of, of great concern. I think the final 
concern that, uh, that I would have about uh, COVID-19 is in many countries around the world, you have uh, private security actors operating alongside public, public security. And we're getting reports that there have been, for example, private security actors operating together with police to evict people using force um, from their homes during a global pandemic. And obviously that's extremely problematic in a situation where there's a public health emergency and people are being required to stay at home or to social distance or even to, to self-isolate. And that is, is, is extremely uh, concerning from, from a human rights perspective. It impacts on the right to home and family life, as well as, of course, the, the right to, to health. Um, and these are, something, these are some areas that I think that these are areas that are not explicitly dealt with in the code, as I, as I already mentioned. And so we've got new rights being specifically impacted. Um, we've got new um, spaces being uh, taken up by, uh, by the private security sector. Um, and there are, there are absolutely concerns about both the personnel and their safety, as well as the, the safety of the, the, the people in the communities into, into which they're coming into contact with. Now, COVID-19 has obviously raised its own particular set of challenges, but what do you think are the most serious threats to human rights related to the private security sector now, as well as in the short to medium term? I think I've mentioned already a lot of um, concerns that are immediate, um, particularly those that are related to, to COVID-19. Uh, um, I think the explosion in the demand for, uh, for private security is, is, a, is, a, is a major risk. Why do I say that? I say it because I think states are, are outsourcing without a proper eye on regulation, oversight, and monitoring. Um, but in the rush to uh, fill the, the security gap um, and to, to contract with, with private security, that the, the, the appropriate um, mechanisms are not, in, are not necessarily in, in place. And I think you, 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 we, we talked about um, uh, Jean-Marc Rickley uh, talking about um, technology and that regulation is always playing catch-up. I think this is this is one of the issues with the, the code that it's it's trying to regulate a situation that arose or situations that arose out of Iraq and Afghanistan, where you did have private security actors operating in situations uh, of of armed conflict, um, whereas now we have them operating in in many more spaces, taking on many more activities that traditionally had been the the the, the function of the, the state. And I think this is one of the key reasons why I think the code needs to be looked at again and needs to be overhauled or modernized. I think the, 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 the danger is that the firefighting approach to COVID-19 that has seen the, the expansion of the industry into these new areas becomes the norm. And that uh, rather than recognizing this was a, this was a, um, a situation where we we, where we were forced to outsource and therefore we were 
you know, really just trying to keep up with, 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 with developments around the pandemic, that states will see that as being the status quo and that they won't put in place oversight and uh, regulation of the industry. And of course, that's something that the Montreux document actively encourages states, states to do. I think states don't take private security seriously enough. And I think the fact that we only have half a dozen state members of ICOCA is, is, is really a great shame. Uh, I think more states absolutely need to get, uh, need to get on board um, and need to engage with both the Montreux Document Forum as well as, uh, as, well as ICOCA. And they need, to, they need to regulate at the domestic level. They need to regulate uh, private security, whether it's domestic, the domestic security industry or whether it's security that's coming from outside um, and providing security uh, locally, it really do, it really doesn't matter. There needs to be um, robust regulatory frameworks um, in place to to deal with to deal with the industry. Well, that preempts my last question, really, which was, what do you think are the most effective <laughs> means to ensuring human rights are respected by private security companies, mm. and, and what role, if any, does ICOCA have to play in this? Yeah. I've all I've always said that that we need a a, um, a mix of different regulatory mechanisms that we need an international uh, treaty that we need domestic regulation and that we do need these soft law uh, initiatives because the industry is is very very diverse and I, I think I said that already you know we've got this we've got a, a, a spectrum and I think one of the one of the big problems that ICOCA um, faces is that there are a lot of smaller companies um, particularly in the global south that um, you know might want to do the the right thing or probably do want to do the right thing and don't want to be involved in human rights uh, violations but the the whole certification process that's envisaged under the, the, the code is something that's out of reach for for many uh, many many companies and you know what we don't want is for for ICOCA to only be the preserve of the few it should be um, an organization that is inclusive of the many um, and that includes the small local private security providers uh, that are operating across the globe. Well Sorka you have given us much to think about uh, it's thanks to kind of feedback and critique like yours that hopefully will make uh, ICOCA ensure that it is fit for purpose in the future but for today thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you.